All right, so in Ephesians, we're going to start Ephesians. And let's read these verses we've been reading. Uh, chapter 1, just start in verse 18, just to give us a place to start. Um, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us toward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And we'll just stop there. We won't get uh, too far. Uh, basically, tonight, as I said, it's, I'm just want to touch on something real specific about the inheritance. Um, all of these things are tied together. That's one thing we have to understand. These are not all separate things that we're to know, like we're studying different subjects. These are realities of his being, of his of our redemption that are embodied in a person. And Paul is desiring that they come to comprehend that reality in that person. And what, what I want to talk about tonight is this to know what is what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints Many believers talk about the inheritance, and most think that one day we'll get that uh, one of these days. And uh, when you know, when we get to heaven or whatever, whatever the inheritance people imagine to be, but you know, all of this is embodied in the reality of the risen Christ, and He raised Him from the dead. the The salvation that He procured and made made uh, complete that which he brought about in the uh, death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so we have to keep that in mind as we as we look at this reality of inheritance, because he's already said in many places, Paul's writings and others, that we have received an inheritance in Christ. And most people look at that and think, okay, an inheritance is something that God gives to us as a gift. Well, that's true. It's it's it, We are partakers of the inheritance, joint heirs with Christ. All of that is true. But what I, want to, what I want us to focus on is something that in every commentary that I've read, we do, I, I, I rarely, if ever, see anyone focus on this particular part of the verse in verse 18 the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that's the part that most people skip. But that is there. You can read it in the Greek. You can read it in English. You can read it. His is there because the scripture is not just speaking of something God gives to us as a, as a separate thing. He's speaking of something that first belongs Christ himself, something that is given to him, something that belongs to him as the heir of all things. And that's important when we, when we come to understand 
this inheritance is his inheritance in the saints. So I want to focus on that. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to be redundant as much as necessary, but when we're looking just the first part of this, and I'm not going to belabor it because we've talked about this a lot, the riches of the glory is the, is the, many of the commentaries will say he's using hyper hyperbolic language to or exaggerated language to just try to basically explain something that really can't be explained. The, uh, you know, the immensity of what we have received in Christ, the beauty and the glory and the treasure and the riches of it in, in some places called the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace is, it, it, it's speaking of the bountifulness of who Christ is in the soul. This is this is what Paul is calling the the, the believers to come and know. He is, comp, you know, he understands that the immensity of such a gift or such an inheritance is beyond men. It's beyond man's conception. It's beyond man's grasp. And when we're talking about divine riches, we're talking about the wealth of God himself, the depth um, of the riches within this framework of our salvation. Uh, Again, in Ephesians 2, it's called the riches, the exceeding riches of his grace. It's not something different. It's the same, same thing he's talking about there. And so we we begin to see Paul attempting to convey in human language what can't be conveyed in human language and just trying to make it, you know, when we think of hyperbole in something that's hyperbolic, we think it's exaggerated to the point where it's not even real. It's all an exaggeration and not not much to uh, give consideration about. But when Paul uses and and I think it's uh, exceedingly uh, the word actually has the root word for hyperbolic or hyper hyperbole in it, in the Greek, because it is something so extravagant that it seems, you know, natural mind is way beyond it. And you can even conceive it as something that's just too good to be true. Well, it's not too good to be true. It's too good to be comprehended by natural minds, but it is the truth of our salvation. And that's why Paul is saying, this is something God has to open your heart to see. This is a reality that the soul must behold as God shows the soul in his own light, that which he beholds as the state of that soul. Uh, And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful reality. But if we go to Hebrews chapter nine, based upon this, and we're going to read several verses tonight, but in Hebrews chapter nine, just the start this out in verse 14 he says how much more shall the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living god for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death and for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And that is the inheritance that we're talking about. 
But again, we have to understand when we're speaking about inheritance, to whom does it belong? Whose inheritance is this? Is this something we get at the end of the journey when we finally make it? Or is this an inheritance that God has by his divine preordination now conveyed and given to his beloved son? Um, There's a commentary here I got from uh, Adam Clark. I'm going to read it, that you may understand what is the glorious, and listen to how he says it, because he, when he says it this way, he kind of misses the point, but let me, let me just read what he said, and then we'll go from there. That you may understand what is the glorious abundance of the spiritual things to which you are entitled. By consequence of being made children of God, for if children then heirs, heirs of the glorious inheritance which God has provided for the saints. Um, now, in some way, I appreciate the way he says it, but then in other ways, I don't. That you may understand what is the abundance of the spiritual things to which you are entitled. Him using the word entitled does give us an interesting thing to consider, maybe, because when you're looking at the letter to the Hebrews, there is a distinction he's trying to make between the Jew and the Gentile and, and, and the one that had hope, the one that did not have hope, the one that had the law, the one that did not have the law. And then later in this letter, he will show how the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection took away that middle wall that divided Jew and Gentile and brought one new man that is found and embodied in, in Christ. Um, whether they be Jew or Gentile, to be found in him and receiving in him the inheritance that first, and this is the this is the thing, uh, this is the point, a very simple point, but that first was given of God to his son, the son that he intended to partake of it the one who was always his heir. The Jew, as we know, reading Galatians chapter 3, believed they had an inheritance, believed that they were heirs because they were by lineage descendants of Abraham. Yet Paul brings it down very simply to the seed himself and shows how none of this was about seeds and multitudes, but it was about a seed. And in the coming of that seed, God's heir came. And when he came, the inheritance was now possessed by its rightful owner. Now it was given to the one that God always promised it to, the promised heir, the seed himself. And so now it's not by works or lineages or law. It's those who are Christ or Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How is that so? because you are in him. You're born of the seed. You're no longer thinking because your your lineage is something, or you're born of a natural seed that stretches back to the testimony. You're no longer boasting in that and thinking because of that you're entitled, and that's why I like this word, that you're entitled to it. Paul shows that there was an entitlement to the, to the inheritance, all right, but it belonged to one seed. 
There is only one that was entitled to possess all things of God, and that is his son. And that's why the grace of God that he's talking about, that's when we're talking about the power that has been manifested usward here in Ephesians 1. This is when you see how God's mercy and grace extends toward us, because it could all just stop with this son, because there's the one he was always after. There's the seed he was always pointing to. Here's the promised heir finally arriving on the scene. It could all just stop right there, and it would be perfectly fine. But God's desire was not just to have it himself. It was to share it with the souls that he had created. If you see it uh, in the Old Covenant, in the creating of the tabernacle and the whole encampment of Israel, the whole thing was, God said, make this so that I may dwell in the midst of them. That was always God's heart. That's always God's heart. And the thing is, we rejoice in that, and rightly so. Most Christians love the fact that that is the case, that God was always desiring to dwell in men. Among is one of the ways to say it, but it's, it's a picture of dwelling in men. That was always God's heart. But the thing we miss, and the thing to me that contributes so often to how insecure salvation is to most people, how, you know, how salvation and the things of salvation, the things of divine reality are so slippery in the hands of most humans. And they think, oh, it just slips away at the, at the vanity of a thought or whatever. It's so inconsistent for us is because we think the inheritance, or we could say the riches of the grace of God. We could say the grace of God. We could say um, salvation itself, whatever. The inheritance, we think it's something God gives to us as an entity all by itself. That He gives it to us based upon some premise, uh, whatever that premise may be. And we've imagined a whole lot of premises for for our being recipients of an inheritance and, and receiving a, a lot of these things from God, or as he would say, the things we're entitled to. We think there's a premise for all of that. And most of us think it's because we're towing the line rightly, uh, living before God and all that stuff. And that's why it's so insecure. We don't realize that there is a premise upon which these things are conveyed to the souls of men, but the premise is that we receive him as the fulfillment and reality of the inheritance. It's all bound up in the receiving of him, not the receiving of it, but the receiving of him, because the inheritance is not first given to men. The inheritance that belongs to the seed is first given to the seed. God does not share that inheritance with another. This is the thing that we get all confused about. You know, we're called joint heirs. That doesn't mean he shares it separately. Joint heirs means that we are joined to the heir and therefore are partakers of an inheritance that is securely and eternally 
permanently abiding in him. We'll see that in a moment. But this is the thing I want us to first, again, I'm, it's, a, it's a simple point, but it's a very vital point. If we think something of God is ours because it's ours and because we have been given something by warranting it or it's just been conveyed to us, all of the things of spiritual life, people have tried to become righteous and holy, and they there's means and methodologies by which these things are attempted but here's the point. All of these things, the kingdom itself, glory, uh, righteousness, holiness, perfection, all of those things are part of the inheritance. You know, these are realities that God had promised to, that would be the state of his new creation. But how does that take place? And that's the thing. Again, we have to see Nothing of it is delivered to us without first being the possession of Christ himself. It's his. You'll remember when we were talking about the redemption in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah goes to buy the land and his cousin says, buy this land because only you have right to redeem it. Only you have the right to the inheritance of it. And that's how it's worded. Uh, it says both right of redemption and the right of inheritance. And here in that picture, Jeremiah is a, is a picture of Christ. So he says to him, buy the field because you have right to the inheritance and you have right to redeem it. And then he says, but buy it for yourself. Meaning don't buy it for any of these people. We love the fact we say, well, God did it for me and it's all about me. And he did all of this for me. He died for me and he did. Okay. That's true. But what was the whole point of it? He did it for himself. God did all that he did to fulfill his own purpose. His own will was at, was at stake here, was in line here. That's the thing it was about. It was about him glorifying himself and pleasing himself with this work, with this, with this whole, not only the plan of it, but the carrying out of it and the fulfilling of it in Christ. It was all for himself. We, by grace, partake of something that if he wanted to, he could have kept it himself and been satisfied with it because it was done. It was perfectly finished. But the whole mercy of God to us were, was that he did all that he did, raised up his beloved, that the fulfillment of the testimony could finally come into being and dwell in the souls of men, so that what he said in the testimony could now be realized in its fulfillment, that I may dwell in the midst of them. That's how the soul partakes of something that is perfect and certain and complete without the soul. It doesn't need my soul to be complete. That's part of this. 
It doesn't need me to be a part of it, to partake of it, for it to be complete. That's how great the grace of God is, is that he could have been satisfied all by himself, yet he desired to dwell in the souls of men and bestow to men the very gift and thing that pleases him. That's a beautiful thought. But what that does is secures the whole thing. It secures it in the reality of another. It, re, it, it secures the inheritance in the air and not in those who assume they have right or are entitled to the inheritance. So here's the picture. We've oftentimes um, drawn these two circles, one in the outside and one in the inside, and you have the soul, and then you have Christ dwelling in the soul. When we talk about the inheritance, that's how we become partakers of it. Here's the, here, I'm going to read some verses here, and I'm going to show you the connection. Um, let me, okay. In Colossians chapter 1, we may stay here for the rest of the time, but Colossians chapter 1. Verse 12, and read through verse uh, 20. It says, giving thanks unto the Father, who has made us meet, that means entitled, or given us the right to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And there's part of it. This is, this is how this takes place. How do we do that? Because first being delivered from the power of darkness, that's being delivered from sin, death, Adam, um, and translated us into the rule or reign of the kingdom of his dear son. And I was, we were looking at what a while ago before the class started, because this and another place we'll read momentarily brings you into view of Solomon and how the people prospered under Solomon and how the riches and wealth of Solomon became the riches and wealth of the people just because he was in their midst, just because he ruled that land. Uh, peace was there because he was on the throne. It says that in multitude of ways, but, uh, there was a name that Nathan, the prophet, gave to Solomon. So his name was not just Solomon. Nathan gave him the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. In that picture, you're seeing accepted in the beloved. You're seeing what it means for a nation, for a people, uh, for a city, whatever we are called in Scripture, to be identified and determined in the sight of God by the presence of a man that dwells in the midst of it, that rules in, its, in the midst of it, that is on the throne of that city and that kingdom. You see that whole city becomes identified and becomes not only governed by, but known of God in that man. 
whatever is the state of that man becomes the state of that land that he governs. And so part of that is what you're seeing with us being partakers of the inheritance and what Ephesians says of his inheritance in the saints. It is it is the one to whom it belongs dwelling in the souls of those who had no hope of it otherwise, unless he dwells in that soul and is the fullness of that inheritance, the true heir that becomes the gift of God to the souls of men. The souls of men have no right to partake of any part of the inheritance. Basically, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it is of God that we're in him and he has made unto us all things. That's the inheritance that belongs to him first because all of these are embodied in him, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and you can keep going on and on and on. Every divine reality, every divine substance is embodied in the one to whom it pleased God that all of that fullness would abide. It would finally find its permanent home right there. And th- there's some verses we're going to read in a moment. It's just the way it's worded is beautiful and, and says that. But he, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us to the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body. This refers you right back to Ephesians 1, where you know, who is the head of the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. It's the same thing. So uh, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, um, when we read that to be in partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life and what we're going to say here, it pleased the father and in him, all fullness should dwell. That's, that's the inheritance being given to the son. We'll read other verses in a moment to say that. And one of them is, is we'll read right now is, is Matthew chapter 11. And this is when he's speaking to the, the Pharisees those who he know, you know, he knows that they're under the law, they're under the the burden of the law. And he's calling them to the reality of which the law testified. He's calling them to himself, but look how he's calling them. I mean, we, we, this, this, this will refer you back to John chapter one in a moment, but look, look how he prefaces this calling to them that says, come to me, come to me. I'll give you rest. Because part of the inheritance is rest. It's an in, that's part of it, to give rest. That was one of the things. If you read, um, you know, a lot of the 
Jewish historical uh, writings, that was one of the things that was paramount in the hearts and the expectation of, of the Jews. The, the Messiah would come and he would bring rest to the land. He would bring rest. Because again, it refers back to Solomon. When he would come, we would have peace, no enemies, rest, riches, and wealth, and all of that. Now, of course, they perverted all of that and tried to make it a literal kingdom, and he had come back and destroy the Romans and you know liberate them from the bondages of the Roman Empire and all of that. They perverted it. God never did. They began to look at it in another way. God never looked at it except one way. God's intent was going to be realized in a in a beloved son to whom all the inheritance of the father belong and 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 that's what happened whether they came to realize it or not so here is the heir coming to those who were under the testimony that pointed to this heir or to the seed and here's his here's his call out to them Verse 27 of Matthew 11, all things are delivered unto me. That's a word to mean conveyed to as giving one authority, giving one property even. It's, it's a word of inheritance. All things are delivered unto me of my fault. And then he begins to show the exclusivity of all of this by saying, no man knows the son, but the father. This is not something that's open-ended where everybody says, hey, I want in on that. This is a very closed, singular uh, relationship that he's calling them to. Something that, that can't be just their possession because they want it. First, they have to want him. First, they have to come to him. That's, that's first. You don't just receive these things. You can't just receive a relationship with the Father because you want one. You have to receive him who has the only relationship in eternity that the Father recognizes. And then you become a partaker of the fellowship of the Son. That's the fellowship that belongs to the Son. You don't, you don't, you don't have one of your own. None of us do. I've gotten in trouble many times by just swatting away the whole concept of personal relationship with Jesus. Don't have it. There's no such thing. The only relationship we have with God is Christ who has an eternal relationship with God that is never broken, that is never in question, that is never in doubt. This is part of this. This is part of the whole inheritance. This is, this is what it means that it's his inheritance in the saints. Basically, it's the, it's the idea that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened because you will then comprehend that everything that you have is of him and not of you. That if it's in your soul, it's because he's in your soul. That if it is your possession in before God, it's because he dwells in you. No other reason. 
If we go back to the testimony, there was one altar, one tabernacle. Everybody didn't have an altar in their tents. There was millions of people, and nobody had an altar in their tent. Because God did not give a multitude of altars so that there could be a multitude of offerings and a multitude of uh, relationships with God just spread out amongst the congregation. That's how we, that's how we think. But that is not the way God sees it. That's not his intent. That's not reality. There was one altar, you bring it there. There's one tabernacle dwelling in the midst. There is one high priest that goes in the heaven itself. There is a singularity to the relationship that belonged to the multitudes of people that were there, but they did not possess it as their own. Belonged to one. And that one was, was the embodiment of that covenant, the embodiment of heaven itself, the embodiment of of, of, of God's relationship to them in their midst. And that's the reality we've come to. And that's this whole thing. He's calling them to this. No man knows the son, but the father, neither knoweth any man, the father save the son and him to soever the father will reveal or to the son will reveal him. Come unto me, all you that labor. And are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. These are people who thought because they were under the law had right and and entitlement to the inheritance and to everything else of God. They thought they were the people of God and the sons of God because they had the law. He's calling them to himself as the one to whom all things have been delivered. All things have been handed over to me. My time is here. The, you know, it's the same picture with um, John the Baptist, basically, except it's in the light of, uh, well, of course, he does say, this is my beloved son, showing that picture. But, you know, John the Baptist saying, hey, his increase, my decrease. The bridegroom's here. The friend of the bridegroom just steps away. I'm done. I'm out of the picture. That's what this was about. Now he calls them to himself again, not to receive something to, but to receive him, to come to him. And in the coming to him, he would give them rest. That's a, that's a big thing. This again, and I know it's, it's a, it's something where we're always seeing and we're always pointing out, but it's, it bears pointing out. It bears pointing out that this cannot be something we just have independent. This is not what salvation is. This is not what the inheritance is. When we talk about the kingdom, when we talk about the firstborn, he is the heir to both the priesthood and the kingdom, right? So who belonged to whom belongs the priesthood and the kingdom? Well, he already calls him the, you know, the, 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 the kingdom of the dear son, he is the great high priest. It, this is his possession. He came. John chapter 1 plainly says it. He came to the things that belong to him as the heir, but the people would not receive him. Remember the ones out and the, the father sends his, uh, you know, 
sends the son. So they'll, they'll hear my son, they're workers in the vineyard. And he says, of course, they'll hear my son. They've killed everybody else, but they'll hear my son. And they say, Hey, look, the heir, let's kill him and get his possession. That's, you know, that's what happened in his death. Those, they, they, they killed the heir and they thought now the inheritance is ours is still ours. We still are the people of God. No, because it was in the receiving of him that you partake. He came to his own, those that received him, he gave them the right or the enablement or made them entitled to partake, to become sons of God. See, that's part of this. You don't receive anything apart from this man. That's not how it works. In him, all fullness abides. How do we receive all fullness? How is it said that we are complete in him? Because we are found in the one in whom it pleased God, all fullness would reside. Now, let's read that verse one more time, because I want to point something out. I'm going to read this in a couple of translations. There are several I could have read, but I'm just going to keep it simple to the King James and then the English Standard Version. Most of your, like the English Standard, most of your literal ones will say it in another, in another way than the King James. King James says, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, that's a beautiful picture, and it's a true picture. We'll read in a moment. But I just want you to look at how the others translate it, because we're looking at an inheritance, an heir coming and the father giving him an inheritance. So it did please the father that in him should all fullness dwell. But look how it says it in the English Standard and a lot of other translations. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased. To dwell. When you change it that way, it doesn't just say it was God's pleasure to give him all the fullness and make it dwell in him. It actually points to the fullness of God, the things of God, and says it was they, you know, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it's like the fullness of God, the things of God in their fullness were pleased to finally dwell in him. And I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Because, again, it is the heir receiving what belongs to him, but it's almost as if this whole time throughout the ages of testimony, there was this mystery hidden. There was this, this veil over it all that hid, that, that hid the true intent and, you know, he had not yet come, so it was all kind of cloaked in a mystery, an enigma, and a, uh, under the shadows of that of that age. But in all that time, it's like the fullness of God was just eagerly anticipating and expecting the moment where it could finally make its permanent dwelling place where it was always intended to belong. It was just waiting for the moment where that risen sun would come forth and it can finally dwell permanently in him where it was eternally and where it eternally remains, where it was always of God intended to be 
because it will never be anywhere else. God never intended for his fullness to abide anywhere else but that one beloved son. All the divine realities, all the multitudes of things that God did, all of the things that the testimony pointed to, could only give a shadowy, mysterious outline of it. But in all of that time, the reality of God was waiting on the moment where he would come and it could make its everlasting abode in that son. That's what it means the heir came to receive what belonged to him. And in Colossians 19, it says it, but let me read this. This is from the Weiss Word Studies, and I think it's beautiful the way he says it. This is just basically studying of some of these words. And this is important. The word dwell, that it was pleased, that the Father was pleased for it to dwell, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, however you want to read it. The word dwell there means to be at home permanently, never to leave, to abide in a place permanently. And the Greek word uh, for home is oikos. This is the word kato-oikos, which is, has the word home in it. But when you put the preposition kata, K-A-T-A, in front of it, it means down. It means to abide there permanently. It means to never move from that place. And that's a beautiful thought, that everything of God in, in its a divine anticipation for him came to find its permanent abiding place, its home, its residence in this one to permanently, everlastingly abide there, never to move from his person. What does that mean? What does that mean for this whole thought of his inheritance in the saints? Because all the fullness that dwells in him is his inheritance. All the fullness of God dwelling in this beloved son is his inheritance. That's what the whole idea of the seed and everything, that's what it was. All things are delivered unto me. And they came to abide there permanently, never to be removed. You know what that also means? They're never mine too. They're never yours also. They don't belong to us in that way. Those things cannot be splintered off and divided. and It's not that way because these are not things. This is the divine reality of God himself dwelling permanently, abiding and making its home in a man. And that man dwells in us. And therefore, all that belongs to him permanently abides in him never moves from his person, never deviates from being there and abiding there. But the fact that he abides in us brings all of that fullness, all that fullness securely, everlastingly dwelling at home in him, never to move, never to be, never to be uprooted. It makes it our possession because he's ours. He's our life. He's our righteousness. How is that so? Not because you got righteousness because of any other thing, but the fact that he is righteousness in its fullness, 
in its embodiment permanently. So everything of the inheritance, everything of divine reality is first his. That's the thing. God first had to establish and secure it all by placing it, placing the heavenly certainty of it, every spiritual substance, and embody it firstly in the only secure place there is, and that is in the beloved Son. And then the gift of God to the soul, to the saints who are in light, is to make those saints the dwelling place, the permanent home of Christ himself. And therefore the heir and all that he inherited becomes the soul's possession, becomes the place, becomes the uh, uh, comes to make his residence permanently in the soul. And the soul partakes of the inheritance because it partakes of the one to whom that inheritance fully belongs and in whom it fer- uh, permanently makes its abiding place. That's how we become partakers of this inheritance. That's how we're joined heirs with him. That's what it means that it's his inheritance that is in the saints. It is not saying, well, man, look at the inheritance and all the things he's one day going to give us. That's not what it's about. It's about what belongs to him permanently comes into my soul and becomes, and my soul becomes the dwelling place of such completeness such divine fullness. And that's that's a permanent state. That can't change either. That doesn't move either. See, there's a security to this. And that's what that's what Paul desires for the church to know. That there is an inheritance. But first it's his. It belongs to him. That secures it. And secondly, it's in you because he he abides in you and that's what makes it secured for you that's what makes you a partaker now again there's a difference being partakers and being producers his presence makes us partakers of the fullness that abides in him forever and permanently so again it makes it a beautiful picture of the idea that it is of god not of us, that it is of him and not of us, that there is the grace of God that continually abides and makes this the soul's position. So we'll stop there, guys. Mm-hmm.